0: Hello everybody. This is Emily Taylor, professor and Ophidiophile. You are listening to the So Much Pingle podcast. Happy herping.
1: You're listening to So Much Pingle. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. It's been a few weeks since we've talked, and I gotta tell you, it's great to be back here in my subterranean studio, and I hope everyone remains safe and healthy as we roll through October, or as most herbers east of the Rocky Mountains like to call it, Hogtober. Uh, Now, for those of you scratching your heads over the term Hogtober, here in the eastern half of the United States... Hognose snakes, which are in the genus Heterodon, are very active during the month of October and actually some of September as well. And you can easily hike up and road cruise hognoses during this special time, adults and neonates as well. And I got to participate in Hogtoberfest last week. I got to walk up several dusty hognoses with a group of students uh, along with Professor Josh Holbrook, and we had a pretty good time. And as I'm recording this and I'm, I'm thinking about Hogtober just now and I'm wondering who coined that phrase. Uh, I don't know the answer to that one and I wonder if, if anyone does. So if you're listening out there and you happen to know who, which bloke or bloke at came up with Hogtober, uh, drop me an email and I will give credit where credit is due. I would really like to find that out. Uh, I love herp jargon, and hogtober I think is a pretty good one. Now I want the straight poop on this. So don't contact me unless you definitively know the real story. And of course, I'm also thinking now that maybe herp jargon could be an interesting future episode. Okay, I'll tell you what. Let's start. Let's start collecting some jargon, uh, some words and phrases that are used by the herp community. So. Okay, herpsters, send me your favorites. Send me the word or phrase. Uh, send me the context in which it, it is used. And if you know where it, it comes from or who came up with it, send me that too. So send me all that uh, to the show email, uh, which is so muchpingle at gmail.com. And put Herp jargon or Herp words or something like that in the subject line so that I, I i can flag it and also uh if you want to remain anonymous better let me know that too uh so wherever you live in the world send me your phrases your words your jargon and uh i, I will uh i'll let this cook for a month or so and then we will see what we have and maybe we can get a show out of this and okay all not just herpers so if you're if you're a biologist or a conservation biologist or you're just out there studying herbs or in the lab or in the field, we want to hear from you, too. We want to hear your phrases and, and catch catchwords and things like that, too. So uh, it'll be cool to see where maybe this goes. OK, uh, where was I? I was going to talk about my brief hiatus. Uh, things are piling up a bit for me in terms of getting shows out. And I had some travel coming up and there just aren't enough hours in the day sometimes, you know. So I went to Mexico, um, Baja Sur, to be more specific, with a group of people. And uh, I should have been on a kick-ass Morocco trip, but that got COVID canceled. So at least I could go to Mexico. And I have to say that the Mexican government takes the COVID virus situation very seriously. And there are mask mandates in, in place for all businesses. And for the most part, we stayed away from large groups of people. And I have to give a shout out also to Southwest Airlines, which is still flying with the middle seats open. And man, they are not kidding around about masks and other safety protocols as well. So good job all around there. So we had a pretty good time down there in Mexico and the herps were awesome. And I finally got to see a Switax barefoot gecko, Choleonix switaki which is an awesome lizard, and but I was not completely idle just running around looking for herps. I also recorded a lot of material for some future episodes of this show coming to you this winter. So yeah, yeah, it was good. And uh, a few days after getting home from Mexico, I hopped in my car and drove four hours south to the Shawnee National Forest and Snake Road, where I met up with uh, Professor Josh Holbrook, who had brought some students with him from Montreal College, which is North Carolina. And it was a Herp Ecology class field trip. Uh, So Josh and I got to hang out a bit, along with uh, a couple of students that had come to Peru with us last March. So a shout out to Rachel and Megan. Good to see you again. And I also recorded an interview with Josh uh, around a crackling campfire, which is the perfect venue, if you ask me. We had a pretty good time with that. And a few days after that, I came back down to Snake Road to hang out with another friend, Dr. Alex Crone, and his wife, Allie, and dog, Juniper. And I hadn't seen Alex for a few years, so it was good to hang out for a day and to meet Allie for the first time. And we saw some cool snakes and had a pretty good time walking on the road. And guess what? Dr. Crone is our featured guest for this episode. I love it when a plan comes together. Now, Alex is at UC Santa Cruz, and he is the assistant director of the Natural History Collection at the Norris Center for Natural History, and we get into that a bit in our conversation. And I always enjoy talking to Alex. His enthusiasm for herpes and herpetology is infectious, and he can go really deep into a lot of subjects. And I always come away from our conversations thinking about things I had never thought of before. And so when I was putting the show together late last year, uh, I knew early on I wanted to get Alex on the show and get him talking. So let's get to my conversation with Dr. Alex Krohn. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. And today we are talking with my friend Alex Krohn. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks, Mike.
0: I'm glad to be here, and yeah, honored to be a guest. This is this is awesome. I love what you've been doing with the podcast, and so I'm real happy to be here.
1: Thank you, thank you. And uh, I have this little book uh, with podcast notes, and you know, keep track of what I'm doing. And I part of the book is my ask list, and you're on the first page of my ask list. Uh, so I knew pretty pretty early on I, that I wanted to talk to you. I'm honored. And, uh, wow. Yeah, well, why wouldn't I? <laughs> so, we've been friends for quite a while. I uh, can't remember where it was we met. Maybe it was maybe it was with Marissa on some trip.
0: Um, it might have been. I think it might have actually been um the four corners survey back in geez 2011, 2012, yeah. something like that. Yeah. And yeah, Marissa was supposed to come um but she didn't end up coming and that was the first time i met you first time i met tim warfel it was like my first introduction into what like nafa field trips were like and yeah and by
1: by marissa we mean our friend uh marissa ishimatsu Ishimatsu. right yeah and uh yeah i haven't seen her for quite a while uh either so y'all are out there on the west coast so Uh, So at the beginning of the show, I usually talk to my guests about what they're up to and and so on and so forth. So uh, I would like to tell you for you to talk about your what do you do? You're an academic professional. Um, You uh, have a Ph.D. And so give us give us your academic background.
0: Okay, sure. So I went. I went to college at Oberlin College, um, which is in Ohio, like right outside Cleveland, um, and studied biology there. That's actually where I met Marissa, Um, and we, yeah, kind of hit it off herping, and I've been herping ever since.
1: Um, And then you you both ended up in California.
0: Yeah, well, so she is actually from um, just outside like the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, and obviously grew up there, but. I came out to California to do my PhD at UC Berkeley, and that was in 2012. And I've been out, yeah, been out in basically the greater Bay Area ever since then. And now I finished my PhD in 2017, and now I work at UC Santa Cruz, and I'm the assistant director at a, the Natural History Museum on campus called the Kenneth S. Norris Center for Natural History, or the Norris Center. Cool.
1: Yeah. And you've been there for a few years now.
0: Uh, yeah, a little like two and a half years now. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And uh, in your assistant director job, what do you what are you doing there? You overseeing the museum's collections and yeah, things like that.
0: That's that's what I do. I'm I have like two main roles. My uh, first role is to oversee the collections, and so in graduate school and a bit in undergrad, I had experience working in natural history collections specifically with reptiles and amphibians because that's what I loved and that's what I was most familiar with. But in this role, I'm responsible for all of the collections. And so that includes mammals and birds, but also insects and lichen and fungi and um, vascular plants and pretty much every terrestrial organism you can imagine. So Um,
1: how, uh, sorry to interrupt, but how does one preserve lichen and fungi
0: um it's kind of the same well the same principles hold for pretty much everything you want to get as much moist. you want to get out all the things that uh mold and other animals like to eat and so those are Fats and water, for the most part, and so for lichens, uh, you pretty much just dry them and then store them in an envelope. You can like glue them to a card using herbarium glue, um, and then store them in an acid-free envelope with a label and all of that, and um, and they'll last for hundreds of years like that.
1: No kidding. Yeah, yeah, it's huh. pretty cool. And I'm I thought I, you would have to drop them in a jar of alcohol or something.
0: No, yeah, it's surprising. Um, like, kind of what what needs to be fluid stored and what can be dry stored like that. Like, spiders are hmm. do really well stored in alcohol, not so well dry stored. Although you can, they just tend to like crumple up a lot. Um, but lichens, plants, um, fungi. Um, insects, uh, those all tend to be dry stored, although you can also alcohol store them as well, or fluid (laughs) preserve them.
1: So as part of your, also part of your, um, as a director. You know, you must have to worry about insect pests and environmental control oh, yeah. issues and things like that,
0: huh? Oh yeah, so that that goes into the collections management part and doing pest checks. We we try to do them quarterly. It's a pretty small collection. It's only about one hundred and thirty thousand specimens, which is small, all things considered. Um, and so we can go through and do a, a pest check about quarterly, and then yeah. yeah we do what we can to help, uh, keep things at the right humidity level at the right temperature level, obviously keep light out. Um, yeah. So that's like, that's half of my job. And then the other half is pretty much organizing the, the internship program that we have at the center. And so we engage usually, I mean, when there isn't a global pandemic going on, uh, 40, 40 or so undergrads every quarter in internships and they do Things like help me do the pest checks and help me prepare specimens. Um, they also help digitize things and take our specimen collection and put it, make it available online for everyone. So it's totally searchable. They help us go out and do resurveys. And so we're really connected with the UC Natural Reserve System, which is kind of a system of protected lands uh, owned by the University of California. And we go out and we do biological surveys and we'll collect some specimens or photo document other specimens and basically store them in the Norris Center as a, a record of biodiversity in those areas. And so, yeah, we've got a lot of field-based projects and a lot of museum-based projects that mostly undergrads, but lots of students help us out with.
1: So your undergrads are doing what you did as an undergrad, <laughs> I right?
0: wish. I wish. I I went to a pretty small school, and so it was kind of hard to find field experience. I had to kind of make my own field experiences. Oh, well, as and, far as
1: collection work.
0: Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, they're, I'd say they're getting an even greater understanding of what goes on at a natural history museum than I did. And that's kind of my inspiration is that I didn't have a lot of these opportunities when I was an undergrad. I didn't it took me a while to understand just how cool and amazing natural history museums were. and I'm trying to introduce undergrads to that uh, nice and young and and kind of train the next generation of natural historians of collections professionals and and biologists
1: yeah, because uh, you know as we uh, natural history museums and collections and natural history itself are really getting the short end of the stick uh, these days in terms of funding and uh, just attention paid.
0: Definitely. And so we're named for, uh, a professor Kenneth Norris or Ken Norris. And, um, he was a big, he's, he's the inspiration for this museum. And he was a huge, uh, proponent of natural history and just observation based science and and plus hands-on learning and field-based learning and all that stuff. Um, But, but yeah, he was the one who was kind of, uh, in whose image we do a lot of work and, um, and yeah, we kind of carry on that legacy of, of making the organism the center of the study and, help having the organism kind of drive the questions that you ask in science in biology and ecology and that's that's what i like to do personally and so it's really cool to be a part of an organization that that puts that first and
1: foremost well there ain't nothing wrong with that brother i agree i agree <laughs> <laughs> yeah well cool uh because i i know a little bit about the collection end of things uh, like uh, uh my buddy dan wiley is uh Works with the, co- the collection uh, here in Illinois at, at the University of Illinois, cool. the Natural History Survey. And so I've had a few beers with Dan over the years and talked to him about uh, what's going on with his uh, projects in, in that collection, Natural History Collection. So totally. I, I'm a little familiar with that and uh, yeah. seen a few other collections. I've, I've seen uh, some of the stuff they have at the Sternberg Museum in Kansas, okay. which nice. is pretty big, actually a pretty big herb collection there, too. Yeah, so, yeah definitely. So... Interesting stuff. Yeah, uh, some people might just see a bunch of stuff in jars, but people can still pull a, a lot of information out of uh, things that have been in a jar for fifty years. It's
0: it's absolutely insane what they can do. Um, yeah, like we can we can talk about herpes if you want. And there are some people at the University of Florida who are doing amazing work with micro CT scanners with HERPs. And so um, HERPs are are harder because they're they're First, they're fixed with formalin, and then they're stored in ethanol. And it's really hard to get DNA and RNA and that kind of stuff from things that have been fixed with formalin. But the advantage of uh, fluid-preserving specimens, sticking them in formalin and ethanol, is that all of the bones and internal structures are, are still there. And so if you run it through a micro-CT scanner... You can literally see and measure like the size of the ear bones inside this random frog that was found 100 years ago somewhere in Central Africa. And you can study the evolution of ear bones like one of my friends does, and uh, just based on museum specimens. It's really, it's really amazing. And, and that's kind of the coolest part about natural history. I mean, I could go on and on about all the like interesting <laughs> things that people do with natural history music museum collections that people would have like never thought of, but that's kind of the coolest part to me is that more than a photo, more than an audio recording, you have the whole organism right there. And by preserving it in a way that it will last for hundreds of years, I can almost guarantee that that specimen will be used in ways that you cannot even predict when you collect it. And that's that's really the beauty it of it. It
1: puts me in mind of, and I know Dr. Harry Green has done some of the stuff in the past, but I'm yep. thinking more recently, uh, a couple of buddies of mine, Yatin uh, uh, Kalki and Tristan Schramer, uh, who were working at the U of I and working, spent some time in the collections, and they were collecting stomach contents, yeah, uh, And that... analyzing stomach contents, which are these animals that have been in a jar for forever, never never really been examined in that way before. And, they, you know, we were to get some interesting data uh, out of these preserved specimens and, and got some published material out of it. Totally. That's actually
0: how I got my start in natural history collections. I worked for Harry Green for a summer back in 2008. And oh, by the it,
1: way, I want to say that this is like the third or fourth podcast where Harry Green's name has come up. It, it sounds
0: I, like you got to get him on the show.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I think so. Yeah. No, he's an amazing guy, and still yeah. one of the people I really look up to in this world. And but but he, bar none, he introduced me to natural history collections, and. I was working for him. I was basically just taking care of his venomous snake collection for a summer um, because the guy who normally took care of it was in Papua New Guinea. And that doesn't take up an entire summer feeding like 40 different copperheads and rattlesnakes uh, once a week. And so... I uh, So I started doing research with him and ended up, uh, well, we're still in the process of writing a paper on the feeding ecology of Asian pit vipers, what was formerly known as Trimerosuris in kind of the broadest sense. Right. Um, and yeah, so with him, I went to the collections at Cornell and the Field Museum in uh, Chicago and the California Academy of Sciences and dissected the um, Trimerosaurus species that they had there to see what they had in their stomachs. And and yeah, it was a really cool, and then it ended up being a really interesting study where we could kind of see what these group, this group of green tree vipers ate, compare it to other pit vipers, and then we're able to see kind of what the normal ontogenetic shift in diet is probably for pit vipers. And it turns out that there have been lots of changes to this over, over evolutionary time. But generally, the, the theme or probably it's hard to say that like the ancestor definitely did this. But the theme in pit viper evolution is to go from eating small things, small, mostly uh, ectothermic things when you are young to taking larger endothermic, mostly mammals when you're older, and there's lots of deviations from that, of course. Like um, Crotalus lepidus clobberi eats mostly lizards its entire life. Uh, Trimeresurus albolabris, the white-lipped pit viper, will just mm-hmm. eat everything all the time. Even as a juvenile, they're born big enough to take mammals, and uh, they'll take mammals their entire uh, life. And They'll take frogs and stuff when they're young and even when they're old. Um, and there's all sorts of variation in those diets. Um, but the the normal we are able to show by kind of putting those dietary preferences on a phylogeny, how those ontogenetic shifts have changed over an evolutionary time. Anyway,
1: I see and, and,
0: in five or so years when we actually get that published.
1: Oh, wow. So you're still that's still cooking, huh?
0: Still, still cooking slowly.
1: Yes. Okay. So uh, well, that's exciting. But when you ex- when you cut these things open and you're examining the contents, uh-huh. do you? What's the scale? Of, how far down do you go on the scale of identification? Oh, I see. Um, Do you you identify this as a rodent, or do you try to go to a specific rodent?
0: So this was what was cool about working in a place like the Field Museum, and this is what really just kind of blew my mind. And so I was dissecting pit vipers that were collected in the Philippines or in Borneo or these far-off places where, like, I hardly knew the snakes that were there, and then I'd get in – and I'd find a tooth. And I was like, all right, I know this is a mammal tooth, but I have no idea uh, more than that. But I would go to the curator for pathology at the Field Museum and he'd say, ah, hold on, there's a mammologist upstairs who studies Southeast Asian uh mammals or rodents and sure enough we walked upstairs and i had this tooth and i was like oh what's this and he's like hmm and he takes a look at it he puts it under the microscope and he's like oh that's Sundasciurus indicus and i was like what what do you mean like you could just you knew the species of of squirrel that this came from just from the tooth and i was like sure that's the world's expert on southeast asian mammals especially rodents Wow. Um,
1: so you're like working in the same building with the only guy who would know exactly. what that tooth was.
0: Exactly. And then, yeah, the same thing happened with um, uh, frog parts. I would get frog parts out of the stomach and I would know I'd see like I remember literally only getting a frog hand and it had like toe discs on it. And so I was like, OK, it's an arboreal thing, but there are ranids with toe discs. There are high lids with toe discs out there like I have no idea what it was took it to Bob Inger and sure enough this was a snake that he had collected and uh, yeah sure as day he was like, oh that's a genus Racophorus. and so from a dismembered frog hand we were able to get all the way down to a genus right away it was Wow it was impressive it was really really cool Robert um, Inger
1: huh wow yeah
0: yeah it was, it was he's another legend and it was mm-hmm. it was really cool to, uh, to interact with him. Yeah.
1: Very cool. Yeah. So it it's museum forensics, right? Forensic yeah. files. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And then, I mean, the other cool thing about this is that every one of those things that I pulled out of the stomachs, they become data as well. They stay associated with the snake preserved in ethanol themselves and added to the online catalog so that forever. So no one has to go back into the stomach and re-pull out or re-identify that squirrel. It stays associated with it, and the data about that snake just continues to grow and grow.
1: That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Definitely. Wow. So there's probably a lot more that can be done with that, I, I assume.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There. Uh, I don't want to get this wrong, but, um, yeah, there was another really cool um, museum study that came out where basically they uh, – And I think I'm getting, I think I'm getting this wrong. You might have to just like cut this all out, but, um, (laughs) basically they were looking at mammal. Yeah. I think they, they had collected mammals somewhere in a tropical region a long time ago and the region had been deforested and they wanted to know what grew there, and it turns out the mammals that they had collected had pollen on them from flowers and trees in the area, and they were able to sequence the pollen that was on these mammal skins in order to understand more about the flora in this tropical area.
1: Uh, because they're not in formalin.
0: Right, 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 exactly. That's a key point. Yeah, the mammals are usually um, skinned and stuffed, and and yeah, they were able to get pollen from the back of these mammals to understand about the environment that they lived in
1: that's crazy
0: yeah it it blows my mind what you can do with natural history collections like so my favorite example is um darwin he obviously went to the galapagos everyone knows he collected these finches um and from his trips to the galapagos but also other into other places he came up with this theory of evolution but he came up with his theory of evolution well before we ever knew what DNA was. And yet you can go back to his same specimens in the British Museum of Natural History and extract DNA from the toe pads of the birds there, of, of his actual finches. They probably wouldn't let you, but you could. And you could compare how genetic diversity has changed in those finches from when Darwin collected them to present day. and that. Wow. That's just astounding. Like Darwin had no idea what DNA was, and yet we could use his uh, specimens to learn about the DNA that was in his finches. It, it's really cool.
1: That's amazing, and I'm sure we'll find that there's some changes, right? Based like, on what no I know doubt. about Galapagos finches, which are we seem to be very plastic.
0: Exactly, no
1: doubt. There would be there would be some changes over the last 175 years. Well, these are these are cool stories because they're they're kind of deep. Yeah. You know, I mean, it it goes back to Darwin, right? Yeah. Yeah, Um, totally. And that's crazy. Uh, I assume when you're you open a jar with an animal that's in alcohol, it's been injected with formalin. And so you've got to handle this thing under some kind of uh, special circumstances, right? You got to be very safe with that because you've got fumes and you've got, you don't want, uh, I think formalin is not good to, to handle, right?
0: True. Yeah. It's a, it's a carcinogen. Um, you don't need crazy precautions. You, you should always take them, but yeah, you should wear gloves. Um, ideally you should wear goggles or you could handle them in a hood. But as long as you're in a well ventilated area, it's not, it's not super super dangerous. I bet okay. smoking a cigarette would be worse for you. Um, oh, and okay. That's also that's also because um, they get fixed in formalin, and so they kind of get injected in formalin, and then you try to rinse a lot of that formalin off before you put them into alcohol. And so there's very little formalin left but definitely there is some um I so, see. Yeah. so gloves and uh, and goggles are are a good precaution and working in a well ventilated area like a hood
1: okay yeah. cool um this is all pretty fascinating for me but so uh, you've done other types of research before you got involved in in the in the collections business so to speak definitely uh, yeah you want to talk a little bit about some of that
0: sure yeah um i mean i've always been interested in, in research and using science to answer like the questions that I've had. Um, I've done herp surveys, um, in, in far off places. I studied abroad in Vietnam in 2009 and did the first ever survey of, uh, a national park in Southern Vietnam called, uh, Trem Chim National Park. And that was, that was fun. That was crazy. Found lots of very interesting herps. Um, that was a photographic survey. And so just kind of took photos and documented them and, and published that. Um, I, the majority of the research that I did came during my PhD and, uh, my research there was mostly focused on convergent evolution, which is this idea that, um, two independently evolving things, whether they're populations or species or whatever, independently come to the same solution to an environmental problem, so to speak. And so I studied the repeated evolution of darkened or melanistic forms that lived on um, three different lava flows, sorry, forms of lizards that lived on three different lava flows in New Mexico. Um, And that was a ton of fun. It was cool to go out and and just study these weird color morphs of there. I ended up focusing on one, two, three, four lizards. Um, but there are also melanistic snakes out there and all sorts of really cool stuff. And so it was fun to tromp around for a bunch of summers, um, catching lizards and catching snakes and taking DNA samples and measuring their coloration and, uh, and then writing it up. It was, it was
1: fun. So, um, The snakes and lizards and other herps are of a a color to match the the rock and the soil, correct? Right, right. And so if you've got really, really dark lava rock and lava aggregates, then the the herps select for that color.
0: Right. Or it may be that the herps select for it, or it may be that um, all the ones that don't match that, color get eaten
1: yeah well i yeah i i didn't mean they yeah you know what i mean i mean, I uh, mean to be the fair, process of selection
0: right right
1: you end up with all all the darker ones
0: right to be yeah. fair it could be the the former but i would bet it's it's mostly the latter and and yeah so these uh lava flows are, are really dark kind of black rocks surrounded by your normal tan or brown rocks in the desert and a bunch of reptiles have colonized those black rocks and they've become darker over many generations we assume uh, as an adaptation for camouflage on the dark rocks and that was kind of what i what i looked at like did they get dark in all the same way are they are all of the species on all of the lava flows really comparatively dark or do they kind of vary is there some plasticity in that and as with most things in science, the the answer is it's complicated, and and that ah. was, was kind of cool. Um, so there were three lava flows. One is uh, about five thousand years old. One is seventy five thousand years old, and one is seven hundred and twenty five thousand years old. And oh, very
1: nice to scale that way for you.
0: That's why I chose them, <laughs> and and they're cool. They're within like a hundred miles of each other in uh, sub- south central New Mexico, and. Basically, the lava flow the lava when it comes out is mostly uniformly jet black. There isn't a bunch of sand. There's some there's a bunch of spiky plants on there, but it's mostly just jet black rock. Then as the lava flow ages, more sand gets interspersed in there. And it becomes more heterogeneous. It becomes more tan sand, black rock, tan sand, black rock. Um, And that's most extreme in the 700,000-year-old lava flow. And we found that the reptiles in the youngest lava flow, the most black lava flow, were the darkest. And they stayed the darkest. They... Um, even if you heated them up, they would remain significantly darker than the surrounding populations. But on the other lava flows, it wasn't so straightforward. They would, if you heated them up, they would actually turn uh, to a similar brightness as the other, as the surrounding population. So even though they'd start out dark, they had the potential to basically look Uh, indistinguishable in terms of brightness from the other populations, and so that kind of showed us that there's a lot of plasticity underlying the coloration in these lizards, and I hypothesized, although it remains untested, that that might be due to the heterogeneous background that they have. They have maybe, you could say, more colors in their palette or in their repertoire uh, to blend into the tanner soils or the darker lava flows uh, Than the lizards that live on those more homogeneously all black rocks.
1: I see, yeah. And I suppose, I suppose, then the the ones from the younger flow also are under maybe a narrower type of selection pressure, but certainly a a constant selection pressure where it's things are different with multicolored. Multicolored rocks and, and soils and sands.
0: That's that's the idea. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to test selection in the wild to like actually see. Do, like it's it's not that ethical. I guess I would say to take tan lizards and put them on a dark lava flow and just see how many survive. And so you can do it in other ways with clay models and other like exclusion experiments, but. But yeah, that's the idea, is that there's really strong selection for you to be dark and to be dark all the time on that homogeneously uh, black substrate, whereas that selection pressure might not be as strong. The selection pressure to be dark might not be as strong um, if there's more sand and and the environment is more heterogeneous.
1: I see. And did, did you look at po- the... I'm guessing there's a possibility that there's a difference in uh, metabolism and and things like that uh, between these these areas, uh, because a, a lizard that's going to be on a black substrate all day is obviously going to have different different set of thermal dynamics than a lizard that you know is totally. you know on, on the dark on the light or on light colored sand.
0: Totally. Yeah, I just so that was something that I really did want to look into. I didn't really, I didn't do it in in a concrete way during my PhD, Um, but I'll just say, kind of anecdotally, I didn't notice any significant difference. I would still see collared lizards out in in the heat of the day when it's like. Uh, over a hundred degrees basking on those black rocks. And sure, they'll be much more wary when it's really hot like that, but it seemed like they could behaviorally thermoregulate. So kind of go into the shade, then come out into the sun, go into the shade, come out into the sun so that they could be active all, all day long. And that seemed true regardless of whether you were on a black lava flow or um, a more heterogeneous lava flow. Um, And so, so yeah, they, they might, there might be some differences there that I didn't actually quantify, but it seemed like they were able to just behaviorally thermoregulate to be active all day long, which is pretty impressive. If you ask me, those environments get, get really, really hot and really uncomfortable for a soft human like myself.
1: Uh yeah, yeah. I hope you wear a big floppy hat out there.
0: Definitely. Definitely.
1: <laughs> yeah. I just asked that because I I think about calories a lot more now, uh, after after Josh Holbrook sort of schooled me on it's all about calories, man.
0: Yeah. yeah <laughs> Conserving
1: yeah, yeah. calories. It really got me thinking in different ways about how, how animals, you know what is this organism going to do to not burn up all its gristle? Right. Or What's, what's the best thing for it to do is a trade-off to burning up all of its calories or its, you know, muscle mass or gristle or whatever you want to call it. Right. Uh, think about those things a lot differently now. Yeah. To to my detriment, maybe.
0: <laughs> I don't <laughs> but, know. I, I think it's, it's interesting and it's worth thinking about because yeah, it is, it's all about efficiency. It is a, a do or
1: die world out there, so to speak. It sure is. It sure is. Especially if you don't have a hat. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And you also did some stuff in Panama, too. Yeah, uh, yeah. That was, opus. Oh,
0: correct. Yeah, that was kind of a tangential project. Um, but when I first started at Berkeley, uh, a postdoc in my lab, she was kind of one of the OGs of Kitrid um, in South America or sorry, in Central America. And she was there, uh, I think, for her Ph.D. Um, back when the declines, when people started noticing the declines in panama back in the early 2000s and
1: um oh my gosh i think i know who this is who do you go for it
0: who do you think it is
1: uh, i i can't think of her name
0: okay um her name uh, is jamie Voiles. but yeah uh, okay there's there's a couple other people that were there with her at this time and basically they they were running, even before these declines were happening, they were running these transects along streams, and they were just noticing, like, dead frogs everywhere. And and as they ran these uh, transects year after year after year, they were noticing that diversity was going way down, abundance was going way down. And anyway, they were the ones who, who basically showed that there were these declines and that um, those declines coincided with this new fungus, Batrachokadina. Kitridium dendropotatus (BD), um, which causes disease that we call chytrid. Um, anyway, and so I got involved more than ten years later. And interestingly, some it was it, it was really clear that there were winners in this chytrid uh, battle, and there were losers in this chytrid battle. And so things like glass frogs really seem to just hang on. They seem to do just fine even with high kitrid loads whereas things like uh, harlequin frogs genus adelopus just tanked and i'm going to mess up the numbers but there's like 90 something species of them and i think 70 something are either extinct in the wild or critically endangered and yeah there's
1: it, a lot of them gone
0: exactly they were they were hit really really hard one of them was the is the national frog of panama the panamanian golden toad and it, they and so I went out with Jamie the first year doing those transects, and we were also surveying for uh, remnant pop- populations of Adelopus. and we didn't actually find any of the of Panamensis the uh, or Zetekai I guess it is now um,
1: right right uh,
0: the Panamanian golden toad, but we found a remnant population of Adelopus varius, the variable golden toad, and that was cool because this was. I believe at that time, this is only the second population known to be still living in Panama. And the frogs were positive for chytrid, which meant that they were surviving. We found a breeding population. We literally found two frogs in Amplexus. And so they were breeding and reproducing and surviving, even with chytrid. And so people later after me, including some of my lab mates, came to show that basically these frogs had survived and developed a, a kind of immunity to the chytrid fungus. This was natural evolution over the course of 10 years. And so so they're persisting in very, very small pockets. Um, Maybe coming back a little bit? Coming back very, very slowly, yes. Are they a high elevation frog? They are. These are all um, cloud forest species. and And that was really where... The lowland species tend not to be as affected, um, in Central America at least, by chytrib because it's just too hot for the fungus to grow. The fungus really grows around like 20 to 25 degrees, which is up in the cloud forests. And that's where species really get hammered. And that's where you also have a lot of endemism in the tropics. And so a lot of these really narrow range species kind of blip out. And that's where a lot of the extinctions happen.
1: Because they're only found on this mountain range, or exactly this exactly. altitude on the top of this mountain, or things like that.
0: Yeah, um,
1: yeah. we have, uh, of course, uh, where I go in Peru every year is um, lowland river forest, Amazonian right. river forest, and we have a species of Adelopus there. Oh, cool, Adelopus At- spumarius. Oh, right, yeah, you know, spumarius. Yeah, no the
0: uh, I've seen new pictures of it.
1: Yeah, and. Uh, so we have this population there, and uh, they seem to be doing okay, cool, uh they yeah. seem to be doing well, but I have to tell you, brother, we don't uh we treat these things with kid gloves, um folks who want to see an antelopepus uh we can arrange that they to take them where the alopepus are, yeah, we don't we don't bring them back or anything. Um, we go to see them, they're very photogenic, fortunately, yep, and sometimes they're just right there on a plant next to the trail, and you can and get some photos of them uh you don't have to ever touch them nice uh, and uh you know we're just very careful about it and make sure that you know people uh understand that you know these these animals are sensitive and we don't want anything to happen to our population of them yeah and it's... they seem to be hanging in there and doing quite well so that's great um, they ha- yeah. they're very specific in their habitat though they're not found out through the entire forest they're only found in a few select areas at least that we know of in our in our our one preserve so what do you think what
0: aspects of habitat of the habitat do they seem to like
1: well they like living along streams mm-hmm. and they seem to prefer uh, uh plant associations are are plants with um large sturdy leaves because they uh-huh. they go off the ground and then and they hunt on on these uh large what, what do you call it spatula type right leaves that are close to the ground and that that's you know so they've got a like a 3d area where they're hunting for insects you know and i've cool. actually seen them actually go up trees too they do they do have some sort of arboreal bent to them that's awesome um, but it's always around uh, close to a creek not in a creek because they of course they use the the creek as a breeding location too right
0: so yeah same in panama
1: yeah that's cool. so yeah very cool and um i'm always glad to see them. and um after all these years i'm i'm fairly confident that the population seems to be doing yeah. You know, okay, seems to be That's stable great. there. So. That's great,
0: yeah. Yeah, atelopis are one of the big tragedies in, in the chytrid world, in the frog world, period. And so it's good to know that some species are still hanging on.
1: Yeah, and I guess being a lowland species, the chytrid is, and I think chytrid is actually present, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's, you know, like you say, it doesn't operate very well. Uh, it doesn't thrive very well, at these lower Elevations where the temperature is much higher, so right it, it may be um, it may be present in the population, but it's not you know it's not vir- virulent enough to to kill them off because right. of uh, high temperature keeps them in check. That's the supposition, anyway.
0: Yeah, that would be my guess too.
1: Wow, um, so that's interesting. I didn't really know much about your Adelopus experience. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, it was cool, and it was one of those things that I just kind of got into tangentially. Um, so I ended up going out with Jamie. Uh, when she was a postdoc, my first year of grad school. And then she got a professor position my second year, I believe, at the University of Nevada, Reno. And she had a master's student who was also continuing. And I basically went out with her master's student for a second year. um, And we did another like three or four weeks in Panama, going back to the same sites, going back yeah. And we went to a bunch of different sites and it, it was a ton of fun basically driving like a stick shift pickup truck all around the highlands of Panama looking for rare frogs.
1: It was it was really fun. And the roads up there are not good.
0: Yeah. Um oh man, it's it's really interesting. We were in um we were mostly based in El Valle and we yeah. were well, I guess El Valle was kind of like the nicer area that we were in, but there was this one site um that's high in the plateau above El Valle. And there are all these like really rich business owners that have mansions up there on the top of this mountain in the cloud forest. And so there's a paved road that goes up there, but it is like steeper than a ski slope. And so even in our pickup truck, we had to go into four wheel drive just to have enough power to like get up this super steep paved road. And oh, wow. of course there were like gnarly, like rutted dirt roads as well, but I was just astounded. I was like, Oh my God, one, one or two rainy seasons. I'm like, this road is going to be gone. Um, yep. but, but yeah, there were a lot of really cool and, and just crazy places to go visit out there.
1: Yeah, I spent a couple of days of El Valle. It's a very interesting place. Yeah, definitely. And got, got to see the captive breeding program for the Adelopis yeah. Zat- Zatiki or Zateki or whatever. Yep, yep.
0: That was yep.
1: uh pretty cool.
0: Yeah, we were we were closely affiliated with Evac and um Heidi and Edgardo, the two people who run it. And uh yeah, when we were in El Valle, we were we were closely affiliated with them. We even celebrated Thanksgiving with them one year. Mm. And then yeah, we were Very also cool. in El Copay, which is a little bit. I know other, that. Yeah, another Highland site. And that was. Yeah, those two areas are are ground zero basically for for Kittrid in Central America.
1: I spent a couple days up there in the El Copay area. Yeah, cool. And it was actually my first solo trip out of the country. Nice. Okay. And uh, and you know I had I have some Spanish, mm-hmm. and I had taken a refresher course, and uh, I'll, I'll be fine. And I could not understand the Spanish they spoke in El Cope. Yeah. Um, they, they had an accent. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. was a different. Panamenos. Yeah. It, it, it was not the Spanish that I heard in Mexico. It's not the Spanish that I hear in Peru. Yeah. And I just, I had the hardest time up there.
0: Yeah. It, um, it can
1: be tough. It's amazing. And
0: it's not. It's not that tourist friendly, I would say in El Cope like you kind of no right there it's like this kind of small town with i right, they they have like one hotel and one restaurant and one little grocery store, and then you have to take like twenty kilometer dirt road up to the park and then you can stay in the park, but it's not very nice and i don't I don't think they have electricity through the night it's like it's pretty rustic up there. And that's kind of all you got. And if you don't have your own vehicle, you can't really go back and forth. And, uh, yeah, it's, you get off the beaten path pretty quickly
1: there. Yeah. It's kind of rough up there. Yeah. I ended up staying with, with some old guy, uh, you know, Tio Beto uh, in his little rental cabin. And, uh, it was me and, uh, Lots of insects and um, was lizards it, and rodents. We all shared that cabin now.
0: Was that was it by like a waterfall? Yeah, 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 mean, yeah. Oh, that's where yeah. we stayed. That's Chorostela. Yeah, oh. yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. That's las right. Yellias. Yeah, yes. Um, that's actually, that's a really cool place. There's some good frogging down by the stream right there. And
1: I, yeah. I did get some glass frogs there.
0: Nice. nice. And
1: some crowd gasters. So it was, uh, it was a good experience, but the, the, the little cabins were a bit dicey
0: yeah yeah we (laughs) stayed in those cabins for like two weeks straight and it was uh i was i was ready for air conditioning and a hot shower when i was done
1: wow so you you know the old guy that that ran the cabins and yeah yeah i can't think of his name i just called him Theo beto because i (laughs) can't remember his name but yeah i can't either
0: to be honest uh, yeah
1: and i we could not Neither one of us could understand the other.
0: Right. (laughs)
1: Whatsoever. So, yeah. It was a very lonely feeling. Yeah. Up there. (laughs) Understandably. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But but we've done some, that's cool. We've gone to the same uh, obscure place. It is. uh, Yeah. In Panama. It's Um, a small
0: Herper's world, I'll tell you.
1: Yeah, it's kind of funny too because I mean we've been to a couple cool places. Well, more than a couple of cool places together. That's true. Uh, yeah. over the years. And yeah, uh, Vietnam most recently. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Which was last year.
0: Yeah, yeah. Seems like
1: uh, seems like a lifetime ago, but yeah, I we know. went last year yeah. and uh, spent a week in, Cuc Phong. Uh huh. Yeah, which and- is a big national park uh, just southeast uh, southeast of Hanoi. Yep. Another sweaty um,
0: electricity less time in the rainforest.
1: Yeah, I um, I'm used to hot, sweaty uh, environments. It it really doesn't bother me too much anymore. I'm kind of okay with it. But yeah. but I was so sick that it was. It, it's one thing you have a, you get a bad cold in the wintertime. And you can you know you get warm. You get under a blanket. But you have a bad cold in the summertime when it's pushing hundred degrees. And it's humid, and man, there's just no relief. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No and relief. I
0: still feel a little bit bad about this, because I kind of organized that spot. And I remember, like, looking at it, and my Vietnamese is is chup chup, is, like, not, not so good. But... I remember, and I was like, oh, wow, it's like $3, no AC, or $10 with AC, and I was like, all right, we'll get a bunch of AC, for that price, we'll get a bunch of, like, AC bungalows, and it'll be okay, and I, so I told you guys, like, guys, we're living large, it's gonna be great, everyone's gonna have air conditioning, it'll be so much fun, <laughs> and then we get there, and what i didn't what I totally missed was that they only have electricity for like three hours a day, and so it doesn't matter if you have a c or no a c like you only have electricity for three hours a day
1: and well, we did have an a c unit in my uh charming swish chalet right <laughs> it looks like a ski lodge for whatever reason we yeah. did have an air conditioner but it had no freon oh right <laughs> <laughs> which you couldn't have known either
0: right uh, yeah it but, was uh, we we made it work but i feel like the the expectations were a little dashed when we got there and uh, we, were like, oh, uh, we signed up for this for a
1: week okay uh, I've I've done worse. I'm ready to go back. Yeah, I'm ready to go back. I feel like uh, there's more to see uh, in this this park. Oh, there definitely
0: is. There's a yeah. lot to see. Yeah, And
1: we got. Uh, and I actually went, actually went back what one or two days early to Hanoi so that I could get a doctor and because uh, I was sort of creeping into pneumonia, so I needed to get fixed up. But uh, uh, we got some of the coolest herbs there. Uh, the Vietnamese mossy frog. Yeah,
0: yeah. That Theloderma was
1: a hard one. corticale. Yeah. Uh, that was top tier herb for me and for many of us, I'm sure. I totally agree. Um, and a nice cobra there. and And yeah. uh, the little pit viper.
0: Yeah, the that, hobby. Uh,
1: Habu, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. So
0: we did well and and there were we got some endemic frogs and some there's that um bent toed gecko, the Certidactylus cook yeah. which was which was really cool. I thought it was super beautiful.
1: Um yeah, that's the kind of lizard that you know Darwin would really appreciate, right? Because I, yeah. every mountain range across Asia had their own population of Certidactylus. Yeah. Yeah. And um
0: really and this was no
1: exception right and some of them are just outstanding looking animals just beautiful creatures and as i spent a month in asia everywhere i went i ran into some form of cerdodactyls except maybe taiwan i didn't see any in taiwan but yeah everywhere else i was running into all these different species and i think i got like seven or eight species of that yeah of that gecko and on my trip
0: in northern vietnam it's the same thing like every almost every mountain range has a different species and yeah it was it's incredible they're all they're all really beautiful as well like pictures often don't even do them justice they're they're really cool
1: yeah 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 and where else we went we went to uh when we went to mexico
0: oh right yeah we've done some uh-huh. trips together those were those were fun yeah yeah,
1: yeah. and um uh, Got to watch you uh, catch collared lizards with a noose and a fishing <laughs> pole. Yep. That was pretty cool.
0: Yeah. Uh, 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 see, that's what you learn with a PhD is how to really catch collared lizards well with an extendable <laughs> fishing pole.
1: Yeah, you're you're pretty handy with that and uh, <laughs> I was really impressed because that's, I've done it a little bit. I'm not great at that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because where, you know, where I'm from, we just don't have much in the way of lizards and they usually don't sit still on rocks for us the totally. way they do in the, in the desert. So, yeah. Yeah. But you've would... done a lot of other traveling as well. I'm, I'm trying to, th- you know, of course, I think we've met at snake road and maybe we've done a few other things together. I'm kind of at a loss to remember at this yeah, point. Yeah. I um, think
0: we might've done Southern Arizona one time. Um, I can't remember. Did you go to biology of the pit vipers one year? Were you in that?
1: No, I haven't been to oh, that yet.
0: Okay. Never mind. Um, well, yeah, yeah, we've done, we've done quite a few trips together. And and
1: didn't, didn't I run into you when I went out West for Thamno Oh Yeah.
0: Yeah. You came out. Yeah. You came out to the Bay. That was great fun. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that was one of my, it's still one of my most favorite snake trips. This is a snake oriented trip. And, oh yeah. Uh, it's kind of funny because for years I would I would just tell everybody, would, to whoever would listen to me, I'd be like, hey, here's what we do. We fly out to San Diego or we fly out to Oregon and we just garter snake our way from one end of the coast to the other. Yep. You know, that would be so cool. And then, um, of course, people are like, yeah, 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 time and money, whatever. yeah And then one day I get a text from Tim and uh, he says, uh, hey, about that garter snake trip, let's do it. And so that's how sure, that sure. trip uh, got formulated but of course that's a much smaller trip because we just basically worked on the bay area but we found uh lots of great garters on that trip and yeah i think we hooked up with you for the first day or two of that trip
0: yeah like the first weekend and <laughs> i had only been in the area for i had only lived here for like a year or two at that time and so i didn't know that much about it but hanging out with you guys like we found so much already it was it was amazing it was it was great fun
1: we found every garter snake out there exactly. in that area.
0: Exactly. That's great. So It was epic. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thaminopalooza.
0: Yeah. That's right. You reminded me, though. We, we, uh, you were on the trip to San Diego when we hung out with Jeff Lem as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was a, a while ago. Also. A, That's
1: right. Another fun uh, trip where we saw three like species. You were there when I got my, my lifer, Rosie boa. Right. Yeah, exactly. Flipped it under a, a board. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. Big old chubby rosy boa. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. I love going down. I'd like to go back to that area. There's just, it's very snaky. It's just very herpy and
0: I totally so much agree. cool stuff to do. And Yeah. I still haven't, I've lived in California for almost 10 years now, still haven't been to Anza Borrego. And like, that's a, oh. another herping Mecca. I would love to go down there. Um, yeah. San Diego Imperial County is just an amazing place.
1: Yeah. I really enjoyed going down there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, You're in the Berkeley area?
0: Uh, Right now I live in Santa Cruz, which is closer to San Jose, but kind of technically in the Monterey Bay, not the San Francisco Bay.
1: Okay. And you live there with your wife, Allie? Yes, indeed. And our dog, Juniper. What do they do? Um,
0: Juniper mostly sleeps all day and plays fetch. And that's about it. Allie uh, actually just started a new job um, working at YouTube. She's like a, a project manager at YouTube.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. yeah, so she's working remotely now. She doesn't have to go over the hill as we say it. But uh, yeah, totally different from what I do, but I'd say almost as interesting. Still pretty
1: cool. Project management. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. And you guys got married, what, last year?
0: No, just a few months ago. Was our, we, got, we got married in May. Okay. Yeah. Well, right. We got married officially in May. We did like the whole civil ceremony last year um okay. but uh but got married but yeah did it officially this may
1: nice yeah. well if i haven't told you congratulations Thank congratulations you. to you both thanks and a lot one of these one of these days i'll see you in person again and maybe i'll meet get to meet ali or something
0: I, I would like that yeah <laughs> and i want to meet nell too i've heard a lot about her
1: yeah um she's great i tell you what she's uh she's really been a big supporter of this crazy project too That's and awesome. uh you know she's gone out of her way to make sure that uh things go smoothly. And uh, since we share, uh, you know, we're at home together a lot. So, um, oh, yeah. you know, she, she's been great at, uh, you know, if I need time for like this interview, she's great at, you know, being somewhere sonically remote. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and she's just been a big help for her. So I've been supportive. So that's, that's my shout out to Nell. Yeah, right on. <laughs> so what else is going on in your world? no trips no conferences (laughs) no nothing everything
0: everything is on pause um yeah i've taken up uh hunting recently which has been which has been like an interesting like deep dive into my psyche about nature um but has been has been really fun and really productive and just a a cool thing to do when the herping is not very good in
1: california Um, what are you hunting for
0: uh so far just gone out for deer and pig um and actually are you hunting with Marissa? Yeah, me and Marissa we are we're hunting buddies together. And yeah, it, it's fun. It it takes you out to new places. You I think the most fun part about it is just getting into the head of another animal. It's like, it's like what we do when we go look for some rare, weird habitat specialist snake. Like you try to figure out why is this animal doing what it's doing and where is it going during the year? And I never thought I would say this, especially in like a public venue, but it's kind of interesting to do it for a deer or to do it for a pig as well. And Yeah, yeah, it's been a trip. And so next weekend is uh, opening weekend. And so Marissa and I got a spot picked out. We found a buck there like two weeks ago. Hopefully it's still there. And if all things go well, we'll be eating a lot of meat, which would also be nice.
1: Okay, that's very cool. Yeah, and of course. I a lot of my buddies are are hunters, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, Mike Michael Cravens.
0: Yeah, yeah. Cravens, and uh, Cravens was a a mentor, I would say, in this whole. Part. Oh, cool. So, yeah. And a, then a uh,
1: my my local friend Marty Whalen. Oh, nice. Is, yeah. Is also a, a a big hunter, deer hunter, turkey hunter, bird hunter. Cool. And uh, so I hear lots of hunting stories, yeah. and uh, I'm suitably entertained. Although I'm not really much of a hunter more of an eater but you know. <laughs> that's fine too um if i had that if i had to hunt something i think it would be ducks because they're so darn tasty yes they um, are. <laughs> i would definitely get them out of the sky and into my belly nice, so. nice. <laughs>
0: yeah no there's there's a lot of uh overlap i'd say between herping and hunting the kinds of stories that you tell the fun around the campfire kind of stuff and then yeah, yeah. getting into the mind of another animal
1: Wow. That's interesting. Um, I don't see you enough to know always what you're up to. So it's kind of fun to to get something like that sprung on me. So there you go. There you go. (laughs) Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, So one of the things that we've talked about and we talked about this stuff in the past, and that is the crazy line between being um, an academic professional and a, a, a scientist and a biologist and a researcher and the world of recreational field herping.
0: Totally. Yeah, it's something I think about a lot, because I kind of straddle those lines um, in my my everyday life. And I guess, like, personally, if we're, uh, it's not really one of those, where did you come from episodes, but, um, but personally, like, I when I was growing up, I thought that the only way that you could be a herpetologist was to go into academia and get your PhD and and become a professor. That's what a herpetologist was. And even as early as college, it was it was actually really Marissa that kind of showed me the other side of it and she introduced me to Field Herp Forum and this amazing community of what Some people call field herpers, but I just lump them all in and call them all herpetologists like because they study reptiles and amphibians sometimes as much as the professors. Um, Yes. And yeah, it was it was this whole community that I just had no idea about. And by then I was already kind of going down the academic track. But it was interesting to having gone down pretty far down the academic track, realize like that. There was some opposition uh, on either side, I guess I would say. and um this is definitely not all, but there are some field herpers that look down on academics, think all academics basically go out, steal spots, collect a bunch of animals, pickle them, and then don't do anything for the actual biology of the species, which obviously don't really agree with. Um, Right.
1: And we all know that's not really true.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then there are academics that don't, I would say, don't really take field herpers seriously. And I think it's just right for collaboration because I have met the, the best herpers that I've ever met have been field herpers. They haven't been professors or anything because professors are too busy. They can't spend all yeah. their time looking for snakes everywhere. And they end up having their study species or their system. And the majority, and this is not all of them, but a lot of them are not out looking for the the local species or those distribution gaps or these other like really important things that, that field herpers are. And, so I just think there it it's like ripe for collaboration and some people are doing it really really well and I don't know sometimes there's there's still this animosity among the two groups as well although I hope it's decreasing well, but. Uh,
1: I I have all these theories as one does when one gets to a certain age sure but I think a lot of a lot of people got into biology because they watched the croc hunter and they watched jeff corwin and they got really interested in that and and uh, so they became biologists and they their friends didn't but their friends enjoyed going harping or bird watching or whatever it is and they just continued to do those things together And, and so it wasn't an unnatural thing to hang out with for an academic to hang out with a non-academic and enjoy some recreational activity, which just happens to be herping. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I've been so fortunate that since, you know, this thing got on the inner tubes yeah. and, and got up and running as a big activity, I've been so fortunate that I've been able to hang out with biologists. I have so many biologists friends. Yeah. There's you. Um, Nick Bergmeyer, Greg Stevens, uh, Chris Smith—I uh, could go on and on and on. Yeah, uh, just to name a few, but there's many uh, out there that uh, are biologists, but they really enjoy getting out there and having an adventure. And um, and of course, uh, field herpers also get to do cool things like herp surveys. Right. Uh, right. You know, they don't—they're not necessarily going to be working in the lab, but they can do some stuff with uh, natural history, and they can do some stuff with conservation and conservation is a big area of opportunity for field herpers to participate. I totally
0: agree. And I would say like the, the system goes both ways as well. There are lots of places where professors are looking for data. They want to better understand distributions of species or predict how their habitat will change or how their um, distribution might change with climate change. And and we, use the data that field herpers collect to do that kind of stuff like if field herper if there weren't any field herpers out there doing bio blitzes or doing herb surveys or or putting their their records in i naturalist or um
1: or Mapper.
0: Her, right um, <laughs> Gotta like, plug and, Mapper. of course and but if they weren't doing that then like there would just be much less data about herps and, yeah. um, and I, I totally agree with you. There are definitely some awesome field herpers who are also biologists. And there are also, there are some good professors who are field herpers as well. Yeah. Like, it goes, yeah. it goes both ways.
1: Yeah. And you know, we don't always have to be, um, have the same goals and that, but, uh, you can have conversations with them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and uh,
1: and talk about uh, similar interests and discuss uh, interesting problems or share information and knowledge and just uh, sometimes it's just uh, having a beer and you know shooting the shark so to speak.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, that's that's one of my favorite things about the field herping community is that like over the campfire you talk to these people who are are whatever like they're they're policemen they're. Uh, ammo salesmen they're like car salesmen they work at verizon they kind of do all sorts of things and yet like we have so much in common because we're all so nerdy about these random <laughs> reptiles and amphibians and we could talk for hours about them and tell crazy stories about the field and, and all of this and it's like on the surface you'd think we don't have much in common but we're all just brought together for the love of these creatures and that yeah. captivated us it's it's amazing
1: it's a nice little subculture. I totally agree. It's fun, and I, and I don't, you know, I don't feel like it was there when I was a kid. It really wasn't there. Um, I mean, the internet's made a lot possible. It's, it's yeah. it allowed people to find their tribe, so to speak. I,
0: I, can only imagine because I would have had no idea
1: that this community
0: existed if it weren't for Field Herp Forum, and then that's eventually morphed into Facebook and all that. And yeah, the kids these days. They have it so much easier, and that they can just—they don't even have to Google field trip for them. There's Facebook and Instagram and all these things that they can get connected with, uh, with people, with like-minded people. And yeah, even growing up, I mean, I remember I would hang out in the swamp, uh, in the town that I grew up in in New Jersey, and. Uh, I was the one who was going out looking for snakes and even the people who like worked at the nature center there, they didn't know. They were like, Oh, you shouldn't touch those. Those are water moccasins. And I was like, uh, I'm pretty sure water moccasins don't exist in New Jersey, but whatever. I'm eight <laughs> years old. I don't know that. And, and, and I just didn't realize that there was like a community of people that, uh, that loved these creatures as much as I did. It was, it was really cool to find.
1: Yeah, it's kind of you're kind of insulated.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, growing up, I I knew there was a couple of guys at school, um, and uh, and no girls were interested in it uh, at that time, which yeah. has obviously changed quite a bit uh, and is very cool. But back then, it, it was a couple of guys at school, and it's, you know, my teacher I had a teacher who was really helpful with that. But that was that was kind of it. Yeah. Uh, unless you went to a harp society meeting Uh, herp society was where you went when you wanted to feel normal yeah yeah (laughs) because back then people would people would say you do what you you snakes yeah what's wrong with you (laughs) you should be tested (laughs) you know that was sort of the attitude back then and so you go to herp society meeting and there would be other people there that were like you say the same same kind of nerd and uh, and for an hour or two, you felt pretty normal. Yeah. And you couldn't wait to go back the next month. And that's really all we had back then. And every once in a while, you might run into somebody else, you know, driving on a road in Texas or somebody, you'd run into somebody right. and you'd exchange phone numbers or something. And actually... You even wrote letters to people back <laughs> then, you know, it was kind of crazy. Uh, that sounds, you know, back in the last millennium, we had to write letters. Yeah, But yep. That, those are the things you do. And, you know, you open her books and they'd say, for more information, write a letter to this Herp Society. You know?
0: right, right, <laughs> and right, maybe
1: right. somebody will talk to you. Right. So a uh, very different world back then. Yeah. And um, uh, I'm happy to be I'm happy as a dead pig in the sunshine, as they say. To be in this millennium and sort of, you know, rolling with all the, all the good stuff going on. <laughs>
0: me too. Me too. It's, uh, yeah, there are some people out there that say that poaching and all that stuff is a lot easier this millennium. But, um, but you know, I think so much good comes from being connected and having these communities that, that it far outweighs the bad. This is it's a it's a great time to be alive.
1: Yeah, I think so. And there's certainly a lot of people who are fierce protectors right of of wildlife, you know. Right. Uh, That's important. You know, like uh like the whole snake road thing. We get people down there that come down here and cause problems. Um but there're plenty of us down here who watch. Yeah. And have the conservation police on speed dial. Yeah. And we're more than happy to, to see that those people get tickets, I, I um, you know, for poaching and whatnot. So
0: I'm definitely not an old timer in these groups at all. Um, but I do feel like uh, a consensus culture has kind of emerged of respecting the animal, of not harassing it, of not collecting, um, definitely not poaching. And And that's, that's been really beautiful to watch because I mean, I definitely, I guess I should also say I'm not very well connected in with the poachers. So like they, or the captive breeders or all that, like I, so I wouldn't really know if they are doing just as well as, as ever. But, um, but I really do feel like in the field herping community, this, this culture has emerged and the general consensus is like, leave the animal where you found it, bring it back to where you found it, take photos and then let it go and try to try to like do as little harm as possible. And that's, that's just an excellent thing to be, to be showing people an excellent, like kind of guiding principle to have as herpers and, I yeah
1: know. i i think uh i think they're animal they're animal planet generation
0: right right exactly because right? yeah.
1: that's what you know all your your favorite uh animal planet uh hosts um that's you know mark o'shea and yeah the croc guy and yeah. uh corwin they would they let them go. pick something up cool something usually something that would kill them yeah they would pick it up anyway and they would you know say something about it and then Maybe, you know, maybe try to bite them and all kinds of facts would come spilling out. And then they put it down on the ground and there you go, big fella. Yeah. Go on with you. On you go. And let it go. Yeah. And so if you grow up with that, if you're three and four and you're sitting in front of the TV, you know, your brain is getting wrinkled with this, you know, conditioning to, you know, first of all, do no harm, yeah. enjoy it, love it, let it go. Exactly. And I, I think that's a big part of it. I, I really do.
0: I i'm i'm proud to be a part of that community that's that's how i feel and yeah if that's how it came so be it like that's that's great and that's how
1: well that's how it should be i think
0: exactly i mean mean, can you imagine
1: bird watching where we're all still shooting birds out of trees
0: right 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 maybe
1: that we could take our picture or paint them
0: yeah (laughs) yeah i i sometimes dream of the day that field herpers will have as much like clout and respectability as birders um we're we're getting there we we have more and more power and more power in numbers and the more that we're associated with these really positive things of like education outreach and then most importantly conservation and and being kind to the animals like yeah the, the further we'll go as a group
1: yeah right. i gave a, i gave a talk at the, the co-park meeting in denver mm-hmm. last february for all the stuff hit the fan and uh I had a couple of cool slides. I, I went to my library and I took a picture of all the how-to books on birding, which was two 30-inch shelves full. Whoa. Yeah. You know, yeah. how to bird, how to do this, how to, you know, all these books on birds. And as a juxtaposition, I had, you know, one hur- how-to-hurt book. More <laughs> you know,
0: Yeah.
1: You know. <laughs> I mean, there are plenty of books on birds and there's an amazing subset of how-to bird books but you know we so we're we're really not quite on the same level yet but birding has had a 100 years on us right in terms of popularity and uh people power
0: yep i agree and it's it's cool just in the 10 or 15 years that i've been here to just watch how much uh how much field herping has changed and how much it's grown and become a little bit more mainstream and developed its own set of rules and cultures. And it's it's fun. It's great.
1: I don't hear, that boy ain't right very much anymore. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. What's wrong with you, boy? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I have, I have gotten that a few times, like road cruising for ring salamanders in the middle of nowhere, Missouri. I remember this big old lifted truck came by and they're like, you're looking for what? And they are like some things I can't say on, on a podcast. And then they like spun their tire tires out and drove away. It was like, that's okay though. That's like yeah. one of maybe a handful of times it's happened. Yeah. To, and that's fine.
1: You do you and I'll do me.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, uh, it has been great. Uh, Mike's on or Mike's off. It's been great to talk to you again. Absolutely. Uh, and to see your face and, uh, just hang out, uh, It was a much-needed medicine for me.
0: The feeling is Uh, mutual. This has been wonderful.
1: Cool, cool. And uh, some point in the future when we're back out and around, and uh, maybe we'll have you come back on the show, and we'll talk about some other cool thing that happened in your life or in my life or something we did cool together, hopefully.
0: Yeah, I would love that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, next time, like, we say... In Judaism, we say next time in Jerusalem, and I'll say like next time uh, in the field.
1: I'm ready to go herp around Jerusalem. <laughs> me too. That'd be, that'd be good too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Alex. Of
0: course. Yeah. Thanks for having right. me.
1: That's it for episode 19. I want to thank my friend Alex Krohn for coming on the show it's great to talk with you Alex and I look forward to seeing you again in some exotic location and folks be sure to check out the show notes for links to the Norris Center for Natural History of which Alex is the assistant director very cool website also here is your herp jargon reminder remember at the front of the show so send in your cool phrases and words to SoMuchPingle at gmail.com. And hopefully we'll get a show together on this topic. And I want to once again say thanks to everyone for your comments and suggestions and for supporting the show. I, I appreciate it more than I can say. Now, just a couple more things before I go. You can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so SoMuchPingle.com. And you can join the So Much Pingle Facebook group. You can also email me directly at SoMuchPingle at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And in the meantime, please take good care of yourselves. And don't forget to hurt better.